We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Exodus chapter 17, specifically we're going to be in verses 8 through 16 as we continue our journey together. And you'll see the title slide this morning, Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is our banner. The Lord is our victory banner. We sang it this morning. We're going to see this morning that this title, that this name of the Lord, it jumps straight off the pages of Scripture. And in fact, when we read it in just a moment, you're going to see this is the only time in Scripture where this specific name of God is used. But what an important title it is that we have the Lord as our banner. The Lord is our victory. And so we're going to celebrate that today. But, but as we get into this text, I want to just catch us up with where we are. But before we jump into a background... I was thinking throughout the course of, of my life in preparation for this morning, and I do not remember a time in my life where there wasn't somewhere in the world there wasn't a war being reported. Maybe it was a conflict that the United States was involved in, or maybe it was some other conflict around the world, but I cannot ever remember any significant period of time where if you watched the news for a week that you did not hear about a war or a conflict being fought somewhere around the globe right now. You know that right now that there are wars being fought. Some of them you know about, some of them you're studying about, some of them you keep track of, and some of them you know nothing about, but you still know that they're going on. We live in a war-torn world. And sometimes in the Western world, especially in the United States, if we aren't actively engaged in a conflict, we sometimes are led to believe that we live in total or complete peace. But the truth of the matter is, is if you are a believer... You are at war. You are at war, and, and the better we are at having a wartime mindset as we live our lives, the more prepared we are going to be to be able to face what it is that's coming at us. We know that Paul made it very, very clear. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, this is what Paul says. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are in spiritual warfare. The sooner the Christian church wakes up to that, the sooner we will be ready to actually engage in battle. And so today, I want you to celebrate this Jehovah Nisi, this banner of victory that is our God, so that you know, number one, that we're in a war, but number two, we are in a war that has already been won. You're going to see that today. That We have a victory banner that flies over our church and flies over our souls and our lives. There's a victory banner that flies very loud and very clear. As we come up to this moment, you're going to see a group of people that jump off the page. As the Israelites have been traveling, they're on their way now to the promised land. We've seen miracle after miracle from the Red Sea to the manna to now they found themselves in a place where water's been provided from the rock. And as they continue journeying on, they run into a group of people called the Amalekites. Now, at first read, that may mean nothing to you. It's just one of the names that are written in the Old Testament. But this is a significant name, significant group of people. They're a nomadic people. They're a warring people. They are a people that are very familiar with warfare. And you might be able to understand that because you see the conflict and you see how it's been building up now for generations because the Amalekites are the descendants of Amalek. 
hence Amalekite, Amalek. Amalek was who? Amalek was the grandson of Esau. Do you remember Esau? We have Jacob and Esau. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. Enmity between the two. Jacob stole the birthright from Esau. And you can remember that these Israelite people descended from Jacob. Now that there is enmity between Esau's clan, right? And still would be even between Jacob's clan. And so Amalek, the grandson of Esau, is this nomadic, warlike people. And because even though they were nomads and didn't claim one specific place of territory, because they wandered around, if anybody was where they were wandering, they went to war. Well, obviously the Israelites are large in number, but there's a problem. They have no army. They've been in slavery. They've never had an army. They've never had commanders. They've never had even equipment or swords or any of the things that it would take to be able to take on a group like the Amalekites. And when you read about them going into this first battle, if you're realistic about the background, it should be that because the Amalekites know the terrain, they know the territory, they're better at fighting, they're better equipped, they have better vantage points, it should be that the Amalekites would wipe out Israel. But you're going to see in just a moment that Israel has a weapon. Israel has a banner. Israel has a victory that keeps them moving forward. And friends, what we learn today is that same Jehovah Nisi, that same God is our banner of victory, stands over your heart and over your souls today. And so let's discover him this morning by standing and reading the Word of God. Exodus chapter 17. We begin today in verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses and Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. And when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my banner. He said, For the hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord, and the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Lord, teach us today about the banner that flies over our lives. Teach us that even though we are in a war, That, Lord, we understand it requires 100% dependence, but it also requires 100% responsibility on our part. Lord, I pray today that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please be seated? I want you to take just a moment, even though we didn't read this together, we read it last week. Would you glance back at verse 7 of chapter 17? And would you read the question that was asked? Because really in the history of Israel flowing from Exodus 17 on, it is an answer to this question. Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us? 
The next event that you read about is the war that they go into with the Amalekites, and it is proof that the Lord is with them. And what we see is that so far in the narrative, we've seen that the Lord is delivered in ways that he's asked Israel to do absolutely nothing. In other words, when we got to the Red Sea, nobody walked across the Red Sea on dry ground and got to the other side. And after the Egyptians were killed, none of the commanders would have looked over and hit each other on the shoulder and say, hey, look what I did. Hey, wasn't that incredible? Did you like the way I parted the sea? Hey, did you see how I did that? Did you see the way I dried the land? Nobody would have walked up and said, hey, did you like how I cooked all that bread and spread it out all over the ground for everybody? I mean, I was up all night, but I took care of you, didn't I? Nobody would have claimed to have been the reason that the quail were found or the reason the water came from the rock. But we come to this stage in the story and we recognize that, yes, God could have completely at one moment wiped out the Amalekites. That he didn't even need the Israelites to fight, but he required them to fight in this battle. And what jumps off the page is the big idea that you see on the screen as you take notes today. We're in a war that requires 100% dependence and 100% responsibility. There are four points that, that I think come out very clearly out of this passage that, that teach us that we're in a war that requires 100% dependence and 100% responsibility. Number one, number one, winning the war for souls requires fighting and praying. Winning the war for souls requires fighting and praying. When the Malachites came and attacked Israel at Rephidim, Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight. And what did Moses say he was going to do? He said, I'm going up on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Moses goes to the top of the hill to pray while Joshua takes the men down in the valley to fight. Now, friends, there is a time to fight and there is a time to pray. And you have to learn to do both. Now, prayer is not giving up the fight. Prayer is the greatest fight that we can have. But there is a necessity to know, yes, we need to tell people we need to be praying people. But as we are praying, we need to be acting on what we have prayed about. And if we can do something about it, then we can be the answer to the prayer, that we can be engaged, that we can be responsible. And so as they go into this war, it must be fought in an active way but it must be supported by prayer. Unlike the Red Sea, he calls on them to take an active role in their defense. You know, most of us struggle with one of two sides of our relationship to God when it comes into how we relate to the circumstances in our life and how God is involved with them. And, and probably, you've probably played both sides at some point in your life. At some points in our life, we're tempted to say, you know what, I'm just going to do it myself. A lot of you are tempted that way anyway. You're a hard worker, you're bright, you get involved with things, you figure things out, you've got that mind, you can make things happen. Maybe God's blessed you in those ways. So you are tempted many times just to say, I've got this under control, I can do it myself, I don't need any help, I'll take care of it. How many of you that have ever approached any situation in your life have found out that it's been a disaster because you didn't have as much figured out as you thought you did? So you've got that group on one side, and who's the other, other group? You know the other group? It's the let go and let God group, right? 
I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to involve myself in any way. I'm just going to let go and let God. I'm just going to pray about it and put it in the lap of God, and I'm not going to do anything. And that sounds super spiritual, but it's not. Right? Not when God has specifically told us to do certain things. And you say, well, I just need to pray about it. There's some things you don't need to pray about it because you've already been commanded to do it. So if you've already been commanded to do it, I don't have to ask God whether or not I need to do it or not because God's already told me to. And so we've got to have this healthy combination between not I'll do it myself and not let go and let God. But where does it come together? The staff that Moses takes up on the, mount, on the mountain, that is the symbol of the presence of God. We know that from studying Exodus. He gives Moses the staff. Moses throws the staff on the ground. It becomes a snake. He uses the staff over and over and over again. He uses the staff with the rock. All the things that go with that, it shows the presence of God. So to have this staff on the hill, for Moses to be holding this staff as he prays, shows that the presence of God is there with them. Now, the misinterpretation of this passage would have been that we look at it and say that it is Moses' blessing that is bringing the victory. That Moses' blessing, because often when we bless people, right, we may hold our hands up on them or we may place hands on them. And so it is, would be, I guess, forgivable to misunderstand this passage, to think that somehow this is the blessing of Moses as he holds his hands up and Moses is blessing the people and because of Moses' blessing, that is why they win. This has absolutely nothing to do with Moses' innate power. Moses didn't part the Red Sea. Moses didn't bring about the plagues. Moses didn't turn the stick into a snake. Moses didn't bring water out of the rock. Moses is a vessel, and him holding his hands up is showing his dependence on the Lord. So as Moses raises his hands, it's only when the people are surrendered to the Lord that they are equipped by the Lord. And that's good. That's good, and when you get that, you start to grasp where the real power comes from. I'm reminded of the story in 1 Samuel 17. We were in Israel. I got, got to stand in that valley where David was with, with David and Goliath. And the story of David and Goliath is, a, is an incredible story because it brings exactly this same point together. David practiced his entire life with a sling. His whole life would have been spent on hillsides taking that sling over and over and over and over and over again. So some people think that it's just chance that he hit Goliath in the forehead. I don't believe that. I believe that this is a young man who was really good with a stone and a sling. I believe that you'd have put him out there, he could have probably won some competitions because he'd spent his whole life on a hillside with nothing else to do. Now, you put a young man on a hillside and you give him nothing in his hand and all he's got is a sack lunch and a slingshot and a bunch of rocks. And by the way, Israel is filled with rocks. I believe he is going to absolutely sling some stones. And by the way, if you go to the, the creek bed where David would have gotten the stones, they are not pebbles. They're not little small, I'll kind of always had them like skipping stones, you, you know, like when you go to the river and you find those smooth stones. No, what you're talking about is a chunk of rock. I'm talking about something that would have filled up the palm of your hand if you would have set it in it. It would have been a large rock that he would have hurled. But notice that not only was it large, but he went and got five of them. How many did it take? One. But he got five. So even though he was prepared and even though he was practiced, when he went before Goliath, this is what he said, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 47, the battle is the Lord's. 
What, is it, what does he say? He said, I've prepared for this my whole life, but when it comes right down to it, I need the Lord. It's not an excuse not to prepare. It's the understanding that human responsibility and prayer go hand in hand. Number two, number two. Look at verses 11 through 13. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. So he has some friends. Thank God for friends that come alongside him. And what does it say that they did? When his hands grew tired, verse 12, they took a stone, they put it under him, he sat on it, and Aaron and her held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. Number two, this is so simple. We need Christian friends to hold us up. We need Christian friends to hold us up. Now, young people, listen to me. You do not have a thousand friends. You don't. The older you get, the realize that when we say friends, I think one of the things that one of the things social media has done is we think about, well, I've got a hundred friends or a thousand friends or ten thousand followers. I want to tell you, if like Moses, you've got two, you are blessed by God. I'm not talking about associates. I'm not talking about people you know. I'm not talking about people that would do you a favor. I'm, not, I'm talking about real, know the absolute darkest parts of your life, celebrate with you, love you, the people that you would tell anything to, the people that come alongside you. If you've got a couple of people in your life that are those kind of people, treasure them. And I will tell you this. Some of you, not just young people, some of you need to be actively praying and looking for Christian friends in your life. Some of you, part of the problems that you have is that the people that are in your life are not making a positive impact because they don't care about the things of God. And if we have those influences in our life, it's going to be impossible for us to make headway. And so we ought to be a people that if God has blessed you, you need to cultivate those friendships. But, but let me give you a tip here. Listen to me. If you want to have a friend, you got to be a friend. Quit complaining all the time. This victim mentality in our culture, I'm done with it up to here. If you don't have any friends, it's probably your fault. That'll be one that shows up on a meme somewhere. But I'm, I'm, seriously, think about it. If everybody you know, out of all the people you know, nobody likes you and nobody wants to have a relationship with you or be friends with you, it might not be everybody else's fault. So we take responsibility and we start saying, you know what, I need people in my life. I've got to have this. I need encouragement. I need people that are going to be there when I'm down. I need people that I can talk to. We need friends. We need people that are going to lift each other up. Now, inside those friendships, it goes both ways, right? Sometimes you need to be the one who's like Moses in that you are worn out and you need your friends to lift you up. Amen? But let's get personal. If you are always the person who has to be held up, then you are wearing everybody out. Because 
if your hands are up and I'm on the left, right side of you and I have your right hand held up, guess what? It takes me a lot of energy to hold your right hand up. And if you never hold my hand up and all you ever do is expect me to be the one, then why do you think it is that these people get worn out? It's a two-way street, so it's great sometimes to give but it's also that sometimes we need to be the ones who are holding the other one up as well and not always take, take, take. Now that's to some of you. But there's a bigger portion of people in here that one of the reasons that you may not have biblical friendships like you should is not because you take all the time. It's because you don't like taking from anyone. Hate to admit you need help. Hate to admit you're struggling. Hate to tell somebody you would like for somebody to come alongside you. So in friendship, we have to learn to let people love us. I use that expression all the time. Let people love you. People want to love you. People want to walk alongside you. But if you act all the time like, no, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. You're not fine. You've got problems. You need people. We need Christian friends. But number three. Number three, look at verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Number three, God's promises are always true even when they take time to be fully realized. God's promises are always true even when they take time to be fully realized. Notice what the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll. That's something that people blow by. You know who is the author of the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible? Moses. We know Moses knew how to read and write well. He was educated as the prince of Egypt. The reason that we have the documents that we are reading is not because it's just some passed down oral tradition. It's because Moses was told to write these things down. And so he wrote them down. And one of the things that God made a special point for him to write down is exactly the story that we just read together. And he said that he would completely destroy the Amalekites. Do you know that the Amalekites were not completely destroyed until the time of David and Saul? You have to get all the way into the biblical narrative, all the way there, to find the Amalekites being completely destroyed. When you read this, you think, okay, well, that's about to happen in the next 24 to 48 hours, but it takes generations for it to happen. And sometimes in God's promises, we get real impatient, don't we? It gets difficult to wait on what it is that we think is going to happen. But... When we talk about being in spiritual warfare, that our struggle, what did we say in Ephesians 6, 12? That our struggle is not against flesh and blood. God has also made a promise to you and a promise to me. And what is that promise? That he would make our enemies a footstool. That forevermore, that the Lord, that Jehovah Nisi, our banner, our victory, would reign forevermore. But right now, <laughs> it, it's often seems like if you're going to triumph over evil completely, when is that day coming? His delays can feel like his denials, but his delays are never his denials. The Amalekites were wiped out. 
everyone who stands against the promises of the Lord God and the person of the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be blotted out. It will be that they will be absolutely destroyed by the power of God. Just because that promise has not occurred does not mean that it will not. Moses wrote down so that Israel would never forget about God's power and God's judgment. When it comes to understanding the future of what, what we are to expect, just as the Amalekites would eventually be wiped out, what we know is that everything that is in opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ will be destroyed. Completely and totally destroyed. Number four, verse 15. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. The Lord is our victory banner, verse 4. When we say that Jehovah Nisi, that is, the Lord is my banner. You say, well, wait a minute, when we were singing the song, we said he reigns in victory. That The Lord is our victory. Is it banner or victory? Why would you place a banner over something? Because the banner is the declaration of the victory. It's just like when you are in a war. When you go into a war, you better know what side you're on. When Jesus Christ comes and brings about victory, he sets the banner above that Christ, Jehovah, the Lord, is our victory banner. I couldn't help but think that there is going to come a time when he is going to open the scroll, correct church? When the clouds are going to open and there's going to be a banner and it's going to be written on his thigh. And what does the banner say? King of kings and Lord of lords. There was a time when they thought it was mocking him, but they placed before, over the cross, here stands Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. The next time they see it on a banner, it will not be in mockery, but it will be in glory. Friends, when we understand that Jesus Christ is now Jehovah Nisi, that he is our victory, that he is our banner, that he is everything, then we know that when we we engage in spiritual warfare that the banner of Jesus Christ flies over our lives it's why Jesus said that the gates of hell would never prevail over the church why because he is Jehovah Nisi he is the victory banner the empty tomb is proof of that the wonder whether or not our soon and coming king whether or not the clouds will ever open he destroyed the Amalekites and friends, he is going to destroy everything that stands in opposition to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. He has already destroyed sin. He has already destroyed death. He has his foot on Satan's neck. And he will be forever crushed forevermore. Friends, there is coming a battle one day. It is going to be the battle of Armageddon. And following that battle, what we know is that there will be no doubt because every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. Because, friends, then they will know Jehovah Nisi. They will know the victory banner that flies over the lives and souls of those who have been blood-bought by Jesus Christ. The question is, does the name Jehovah Nisi, does that banner fly over your soul? Either it flies over your soul and He is your victory, He is your banner, or it doesn't fly over your soul. And friends, if it does not, I can tell you that you will be destroyed. Hell will be your reward for not having Jesus as your victory banner. But the truth of the matter is that there is a way that leads to life. 
There is a narrow road that the Lord has invited you to walk on. And you're invited to give your life to Jehovah Nisi, the banner of victory that provides the greatest thing that you could ever hope for, the hope of the gospel.